Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Sally Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're really excited to have Brian Case on the show. Brian is the Chief Digital Officer at GE Renewable Energy. He leads digital product management for GE Renewable Energy across the onshore wind, offshore wind, and hydro business segments. He's responsible for developing and executing the product strategy, including a release of features supporting customer pain points and business needs. Brian has been with GE for about 15 years. And prior to GE, Brian studied civil engineering at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He also served our country for six years as an armor officer. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, Patrick, for having me on. Brian, if you don't mind, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your role as Chief Digital Officer at GE Renewable Energy? Thanks, Shelley. Yeah, it's, I mean, a really exciting role, especially as we think about the energy transition that's underway. And, and just recently, we've seen a lot of press um, about the growth of renewables, both driven by some of the COVID implications globally, but then just with specifically in the United States with the change of administration. So it's really an exciting time for us to be, be in the industry. And really digital is the forefront of supporting that transition, both in terms of how energy gets orchestrated, but then where my team is focused specifically on how assets are optimized when they're up and running. We're part of our service business. So a big focus of ours is very specifically driven around ensuring that our systems on premise or at the site are working effectively. We're leveraging the edge to the extent that we can and taking where latency matters, taking um, and driving action that may take place again at that local uh, location to moving that data into the cloud and, and conducting all the important analytics and diagnostics and, and understanding performance and being able to effectively visualize that for our customers. And then ultimately those insights are great, but we wanna then take those insights and move them into some form of action because it's actually that action that becomes really the money step for our business. So as we look across that within the segments that we play in, so wind, hydro, and solar, really those are the big themes under which we're driving to help our service business uh, run better, to help our customers who may be self-performing that O&M at their sites to help them run more efficiently, and then ultimately to lower the cost of electricity because we want to make renewables much more competitive um, across the energy landscape. So exactly who are your customers? Who is it that you're, you're selling to? So one, I would say it's both an internal sale and an external sale. I sit in a unique position where probably my number one customer is actually our service business. And actually, I would, I would actually argue my hardest customer um, is our service <laughs> business because- That makes sense. You know, they can, they can easily call me up very quickly and, and let me know what's wrong, uh, which is great because then we get uh, very instantaneous feedback. You know, and I, and I go back to a, a lesson that I learned and, and really this was a pivot that we had in the organization and I draw a lesson from my time when I was in GE Ventures and, and working with uh, actually a, a person named David Kidder, who, who runs a, a successful uh, firm called Bionic. He was very focused on helping us understand our proprietary gifts. And there are lots of software players that are out in the industry today, especially when we talk about energy, that can deliver value and deliver part of um, the solution. But a proprietary gift that we have as an organization is this 20,000 turbine install base moving, you know, terabytes of data across 40 different countries with 
3,000 technicians and a deep engineering bench on the physics of the wind turbine and how it operates and being able to leverage that and harness that to build, you know, kind of escape velocity as we think about how to move our product forward uh, was really an important transition for us because we could get that very harsh and critical feedback into how we were developing our products, use that feedback to drive almost immediate bottom line um, improvement for our business, and then take all of those lessons and start to move those into direct engagement with our customers. So then most of our customers who may we, we may work with, I'll say outside of our core service business, would be those that own and operate large utility scale energy assets. So some of the core utilities uh, around, the, around the world, um, as well as what we call independent power producers, who may not be a regulated utility, but also own and operate energy assets. What are some of the, the biggest headlines, biggest things that have changed since COVID struck? You mentioned that it's, it sounds net positive. Uh, what are some of those big changes or, or headlines outside of like administration changes and things like that? I mean, it just accelerated the digital transformation. I mean, it no longer became something that was nice to have, but you, I mean, it was a must have. You know, we, we needed to have a, you know, digital thread that works through our business. Um, and likewise, our customers need that digital thread to be able to communicate. It's much harder now to be able to physically go do something. And it really accelerated across every paradigm, kind of the, uh, the motivation to adopt digital. And, and that's an important piece because digital is much more than just uh, you know, an application that we download. You know, it's about the process changes that need to occur to have the bottom line impact that you need so that that investment, because every time you go, whether you're buying something or you're, you're building it in-house, all of those things are investment. They cost money. And any business team wants to see a return on that investment. So understanding those operational process changes that need to occur is absolutely essential. And the great thing is that really COVID became a catalyst for forcing a lot of that to happen because we got you know, sort of thrust into you know into that environment whether we like it or not you know we had to we had to figure out a way to adapt and i think that theme is across every industry it's a global theme um, when you look at every every country and every team that we're operating with around the world that's kind of a resounding fact that stands true a good friend of mine says uh, having no choice is a great incentive <laughs> yeah it's definitely a motivator it's definitely a motivator and Brian, I'm just curious, you know, being in such a large organization, how do you navigate not only the needs of internal and external customers, but how has that changed, I guess, over the last 12 months with COVID? Uh, I mean, really, really great question. You know, it all goes back to the repeatability of the problem, you know, especially in software where you become very focused or you could become very focused on kind of feature development and incremental feature um, improvements it's very easy to take kind of one person's feedback and say, well, this is the direction we need to go now, or this is the, you know, the next uh, set of work that we need to go do. And it's really important to spend time understanding one, the problem itself, and then two, the repeatability of that problem to understand how it gets prioritized and, and how to focus. And then more importantly, the impact of that. So for us, it's, it's really about spending time with our users to really understand that repeatability and finding those trends and then using that as a mechanism to drive the actual action when it comes to the product improvement. I love that concept of repeatability of the problem. Can you dig into that a little bit further? Because I think that's a really great concept. There are lots of problems, you know, to go off and solve. 
and to develop kind of the value proposition around, around how do you solve it. But many times, um, and this is kind of goes back into how do you build a business from scratch or a new product from scratch, you know, having one customer or one very distinct example of a problem is not necessarily, you know, something that is going to be scalable. You could be, you know, spend a lot of time building a product that solves a problem for a customer of one. And when you think about the repeatability of a problem, it sort of validates, you know, the need for building and scaling a product that becomes a business that you can then, you know, go serve a wide array of customers. And I think that's a really important piece to understand is, is getting the hard commercial truth behind, is this, you know, just an issue that this one, you know, particular customer has, or is this something that is a trend through the industry, whatever industry that may be, that then warrants some real investment behind it that you can then sort of build something off of, whether that's a, an individual, individual product or an entire business around it. I, I do agree with that. You see that a lot of like, is it important or is it important to many people, right? Like just because you're solving a problem to that point of like, it doesn't mean somebody's going to pay for it. And there could be, you know, different business models too, because in a, in a business model where sort of engineering or creating revenue from engineering dollars, that could be a viable approach because the repeatable problem you're solving is engineering capacity and you're just picking up engineering work and billing to that in order to go solve that problem. In a product-based business where you want the product to drive the margin and the revenue, you want to make sure that you're building a product that fits, again, kind of that a problem that extends beyond one, one customer, uh, but really becomes a trend in an industry or maybe even across industries. So that customer obsession, right? Something that uh, you speak about a lot, right? The culture of creating that. How do you do that? Obviously, product is historically more customer focused, but getting into you know, to the engineering teams. And is there something that you're doing to help spread that kind of focus? It's always a work in progress. It's easy, very easy in, in a forum like this to kind of talk about, you know, all the things that we're doing and, and making it sound like, hey, we've just solved world hunger and, and we've we've got this uh, we've got this under control. The reality is that this is this is a, a you know a continuous journey that you're on. But you know some of the things that we drive um, and that we try to reinforce is really spending time with our users. And this is really a, uh, again a pivot that we made probably two or, or maybe even two and a half years ago around forming groups of customers that we really spend time with in. in you know, kind of have empathy for what the customer is going through and their workflows to make sure that we understand the needs of the product. It's very easy, and this is a trap a lot of product managers fall into, um, especially on, on the product side and even engineering teams, that you have an idea and because, you know, it's, it's your idea, it's, it's got to be great. And, you know, everyone has the, you know, the, the pretty baby and, and we just love, you know, we love our children but, you know, the reality is not, not all babies are pretty. And, and sometimes you need that harsh feedback to come back, you know, to really understand what's going to matter for, for the customer, for our users. Um, and really being focused on, on accepting that feedback, spending the time to actually get that firsthand from the users is really important. And just as an example, one of the things that we actually did is we took our engineering teams. And again, this is as we started that transition some of those that were working on applications that were directly related to our field teams is actually have them go to the field 
spend time with the teams at a wind site that is in some remote location of the world and climb 80 to 100 meters in the air as they're doing maintenance, you know, so they understand what it's like when a technician has to go do a task and what that means for that technician, both, both physically as well as, you know, just the, the nature of the work. And, and that's really connecting the engineering teams and the product teams to their users. Um, so they kind of have that empathy for, for what they're going through. I think that's fantastic. But as a guy who doesn't like heights, no way. <laughs> I'll empathize from about 20 yards off the ground. That might be the height of it. And I'm going to need a lot of safety measures in place for that to occur. You, you could have stayed in the nacelle where you don't see the outside. So you yeah, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll empathize from afar. Yeah. Right? Like, that makes sense. That guy looks really uncomfortable. <laughs> there's no way uh getting a ladder to like the second floor of my house is, is you know there's somebody else who could do this so uh but that is really great i've uh i've talked about how uh organization i've worked at where getting in the call room right the call room just to hear what people are complaining about really i think uh helps clear it but one of the concepts that i i want to see is like you know the customer of my customer, because you've got internal customers and you've got external customers. The customer of my customer is my customer. Is that something that you reinforce with people? Well, you know, I mean, it's an interesting concept. I would say one of the things that's unique about what we're doing, and, and I think this is where the blend of uh, the concept of internal and external comes into play, is that the user or the persona that is using our, our tool, our applications, uh, our solutions is really the same whether they wear a GE badge or they wear a customer badge to work every day, because the act of operating an energy asset is very similar. And then it just becomes the commercial mechanism under which our customers consume the product, whether they're consuming it through kind of a risk product that our, you know, that our service business helps to offset how the, you know, or provide capability for how the wind asset operates, or they're directly operating it and they're, you know, just sort of consuming the product directly. It's good stuff. It is. It's really good stuff. So pivoting a little bit to, you know, driving that culture, you know, one of the things we talked about before was internal versus external metrics and and how uh, you're leveraging those to, to help drive that culture and create clarity. Do you mind sharing more about that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think there's a, there's a external metric, which is really what, you know, many customers care about. And that's at the end of the day, the bottom line impact, right? So when we look at our customers and our industry care about how are they increasing their revenue? How are they reducing their cost? And how are they reducing their risk? It's really those three things that is your owning and operating an energy asset that really matter. And we try to focus on those levers that drive one of those three things for, for our customer base. Um, we look at the internal metrics, and this is all part of, you know, when we think about establishing a true North in, in our mission, it actually aligns a lot to some of the things that we've talked about actually, Patrick, with around DevOps. And, you know, when we look at velocity, when we look at quality and, you know, some of the core things around lead time and deployment frequency and mean time to restore and change fail rate, because all of those things factor into the speed under which we're able to deploy some capability to solve a problem for a customer and the quality under which we're able to deliver that capability for our customers. So what, what does the customer experience, what is the performance of the product as the customer is using it? And I love those four metrics, um, you know, to help really align and establish that um, and, and get all of our teams, you know, focused on delivering that value. 
It's great. Those are great metrics. Great, you know, for any team, right? Because that's that's how you're being seen from the outside, and it's very clarifying about uh, whether you choose to operate on releasing on a daily basis is one thing. Being able to do it's another. So, with your background, uh, you know, obviously being a West Point grad and having been, you know, an armor officer for six years, what are some of the the biggest lessons uh, that you learned there that you apply in your job today? You know, one. It was such a great experience to come in right out of college and spend and spend six years, you know, in in the military because it really sort of forged perspective, um, as well as is a, a number of lessons that I've really used throughout my my entire career. Number one is just learning velocity. I mean, as you can see in in my background, civil engineering major, you know, in my resume, nothing up until the point that I had this job had anything to do with software development. And that's where learning velocity really comes into play. You know, when I stepped out of, of college, even though I went to a, you know, a military college that was focused on, on raising, you know, army, army officers, with the first day at 22, when you step into your unit, you know, you, you know absolutely nothing. And the speed under which you can sort of learn and come up to speed and the humility that you kind of accept in order to recognize that you're stepping into uh, an area where even though you have an education behind you, that you have people that have been educated because they've been actually doing the work for a long period of time and have a tremendous amount of experience. And understanding that, understanding the need of, of accelerating your speed of, of learning, because they're depending on you to, to provide direction um, and, and lead the organization, but then also having the humility to, to look to them for, for answers, because they've been doing it for 10, 20 years at that point in time and you know, have the experience to leverage. And, and I kind of bring that thought process here. I spend you know, an incessant amount of time learning, um, reading books and, and trying to get up to speed when it comes to software development and software engineering. And then likewise, looking to my teams um, to spend time with them and get their feedback around how we need to operate. Because you know, again, a lot of them have spent time either in college or, or direct work experience uh, building software solutions. And, and they have a lot of great ideas that it's just a matter of unlocking those uh, across the organization. And then, you know, the other piece is really just, I think, perspective of kind of what really matters and how to kind of deal with, with stress and prioritize. You know, with, within the six years that I was in, I kind of, it was, happened to be a unique time in, in the history of, of the, at least the U.S. Army where we were deployed in multiple locations and I spent a year in, in Iraq and one that really provides focus of, of what matters um, because you, uh, you know, put your life on the line and, and you're responsible for a lot of people. Two, you understand how to prioritize because there's a lot of noise and being able to decipher signal from noise is part of it. And then the last piece is just really having kind of patience to understand that, you know, one, the first report that you get is probably not accurate. So develop the battlefield a little bit, understand, you know, understand the problem. Um, and two, you know, if you stay calm, you know, you can resolve most situations. So I try to try to keep an even keel through, through almost uh, any situation in order to, you know, kind of set the, the temperament and, and the culture across the organization that, you know, even though we may experience a lot of challenges, we're going we're gonna to try to work through them and develop a solution together. That's really interesting. And, and Brian, I'm curious what your advice is for veterans coming into the workforce today. And then also from an employer's perspective, how do you maybe look at talent differently than some of your colleagues who are not veterans? 
Yeah, I, I mean, first and foremost is I would recommend for employers that what you see on a resume when it comes to a veteran sometimes isn't easily translatable to a job description that maybe they're worth the seeing and take advantage of other veterans that may be in your organization to help in that recruiting process and the interpretation of those resumes. And it's even u- unique by from branch to branch. So just because somebody served uh, in the army or the Marines, they may not be able to very clearly articulate you know, and read a resume from somebody in the Navy or the Air Force. So being able to kind of leverage that, what may exist in-house to help with that communication is important. And then I think it works for both sides of the aisle. You know, what really stands out to veterans is aligning to a mission and getting and aligning to a team and a culture where they can come in and, and sort of be accepted and, and, and really kind of fit into that, that kind of team mindset and team culture. Um, and, and those are two things that we really try to do at GE. Uh, we're one, we have a mission, you know, to, to really bring clean energy to the world and kind of make the, make the world um, run with, with limitless energy. And then two, bringing veterans together, you know, as part of a forum in order to create that connective tissue between, uh, between veterans, uh, both professionally and socially, um, to create kind of that family network for people to, you know, to be able to thrive. So my recommendation for employers would be to establish that for veterans to look for that in a job opportunity, because that's, that's where you can really flourish. And then all, the other recommendation for veterans would really be around being able to communicate those experiences that really drive leadership, regardless of how it applies tactically to the, you know, sort of tactical and technical execution of that job, but the broader experience that you have and how that translates to the business environment. And I've actually taken most of my lessons of, that I apply to, to my 15 years at GE from those six years uh, in the military. That's awesome. Thank you. What is a, one of the most important books that you've read recently about how to, how to lead? I know a lot of like the military has a, a strong communication strategy, right? That's a really important part. Comms are the critical element, right? Uh, and it's something I see in a lot of organizations that they're short on is having clear lines of communication, how to, how to get messages to everybody uh, and then get messages back. Is there something that you've read recently that you, you'd say, Hey, this is a really great book. I think everybody should be checking this out. Well, really. And it's funny. I almost feel like you were leading the witness there a little bit, uh, Patrick, because we've talked before, but I really think there are, there are probably three or four that really stand out to me. Um, first, I love uh, the ideal team player by Patrick Lencioni. Um, and I actually think that's really, really important, especially in technical roles where understanding teamwork and, you know, the importance of being humble, hungry and people smart, how that really matters to getting work done. And not only in the hiring process up front, but then how the team operates. I, they're just, it's a very quick read, very short, but it provides a lot of very simple context for, again, kind of hiring and operating, you know, in a, in a team environment. As you, as you were kind of leading into, I love uh, Team of Teams, um, sort of the principles behind that, um, especially in a matrix organization like GE of creating those forums for communication in real time um, are important. I've actually driven a lot of my operating rhythms within across my organization based on the concepts that are laid out in that book. And then too, and you, you referenced the author at the beginning, you know, if I look at the DevOps Handbook and Accelerate, two great books by Gene and Des, um, and actually I have you know DevOps handbook sitting next to me here, just happened to have it um, at my desk. Great tools around building an organization 
and kind of aligning some of those core metrics that we talked about before and some examples from other businesses um, and other industries of how they can be adopted and, and you know, and, and employed within, within your respective, you know, sort of technology field. So I'm going to reduce those three books down to people, process, and tools. Yeah. I have a real aversion to like this meme I see or, you know, this hire smart people and get out of the way, right? Like, what are you doing then? Right? <laughs> Wasn't your job supposed to like set a goal, lead, uh, yeah. set some objectives, <laughs> coach? And I think that's one of the biggest problems we have is that their people aren't being taught how to lead. They're not being taught how to coach or teach. One concept that I use with a lot of my clients is that like, you know, you have a shortage of non-commissioned officers, right? You don't have the corporals or the sergeants who are taking, you know, these good people, but they don't really, like you mentioned, you know, you stepped in, I'm sure you, you know, whoever is your, your top non-commissioned officer is the person you've got to build rapport with and he or she's probably been there 10 years. Right. And you're, you're the guy fresh out of, out of, uh, West Point. So I think we've all seen that movie once or twice. Right. Uh, so is that something you focus on as well as like developing some of those non-official managers, coaches, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, talent development is a big, a big focus in our organization and in, in being able to, you know, look at, you know, everybody as an individual and what are the things that they're really, really good at, where they differentiate themselves today understanding where those gaps are and then, you know, providing the opportunities for them to, you know, expand to solve some of those gaps that may exist. You know, I try to keep a really open door um, across everybody in my organization um, and try to maintain a pretty flat sort of communication structure um, so that, uh, that, that we can have a lot of those dialogues um, to focus on not only, you know, where there are certain career aspirations and how we can help, round out those those employees and, and coach them, but also to just kind of talk through maybe some of the individual problems that they're going through um, when it comes to their, again, their professional or even in some cases personal, you know, to help them help them work through it. And a lot of times what I find is that people try to coach with answers. And a lot of times you don't necessarily as a leader have to feel obligated to have the answer, but be able to ask the right questions so that together you can kind of draw come to a conclusion that's that's really the right right solution for for the given problem and i think it's understanding how to how to lead with some of those questions that become key enablers for some of those coaching sessions and brian who do you go to when you need a mentor or you need professional support uh great great question i look back on my career it, it really you know probably three to five people that have really stood out to me you know, first, you know, if I go all the way back to my time in the military, my battalion commander, um, who is who led led our battalion, uh, Eric Schwartz, during during the invasion of, of Iraq in 2003, tremendous leader, and again drew a lot of experience in terms of that calm under pressure, and in some of the core leadership uh, from him. You know, David Kidder, who I mentioned earlier uh, when I was over in Ventures, who from a mindset perspective and being able to establish a growth mindset within an organization. I remember the first time he talked to me, I felt like a deer in the headlights staring at him. He was, you know, uh, speaking a completely different language. And over time, really kind of understanding that growth mindset, what it meant and how you drive that in an organization. And then operationally, I had a great pleasure of working with a a venture capital leader, Eric Strasser, again, when I was in, in GE Ventures, who really helped me understand how to operationalize an idea and drive that into sort of de-risking that idea to create a business 
and just learned a tremendous from him. And then my, my bosses that I've had over the years, both my current boss, Ann McEntee, and then um, a, a former boss, Colleen Calhoun, who who always kind of given me the opportunity um, to kind of step in and, and, and demonstrate where, uh, where I could add value uh, to the team. It's, it's something we always stress on everybody needs help. Nobody gets very far on their own. Yeah, absolutely. It's a team. It is a team. The team concept, right? It's just, it's critical more. So uh, when we talk about digital transformation, right? Like to your point before about, it's not just about technology or tools, right? It is actually about how do you organize people because it is an entirely different mindset of, you know, the team of teams touches on it of like the, the changes that happen so rapidly, right? You have to have overlap. You have to have a certain level of redundancy. You can't have these uber efficient models of silos that, you know, manufacturing leveraged, right? You need to have these squads that can move, right? And uh, it's, it's really interesting stuff. All right. Well, I think we could go on for another hour and a half if we wanted to. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna close it out here. I wanted to say thank you so much, Brian, for being on the show, sharing your experience. It's amazing things that you're doing, and uh, we wish you nothing but the best in the future. Thank you, Brian. Great, thanks, Patrick and Shelley. Enjoyed enjoyed being on the show. We also wanted to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.